This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. I'm Lee Hutchison, I'm back again, and I'm joined as always by Richard. You seem to be the only one that's never on holiday or ever takes a break, Richard. You're, You're a true hard worker. (laughs) <laughs> soon enough i will be taking my vacation and i worry <laughs> <laughs> and well amy is unfortunately on holiday today so i'm sure she'll be uh, as excited to listen in as she would be to take part so today we're joined by duncan barrett and i've got an exciting uh, introduction for you duncan to let oh, people wow. know who you are which is shamelessly stolen from amazon because <laughs> if you've, you've got if you've got a biography on amazon surely we should that's like the number one uh, vetted introduction so i'm going to go with that one so duncan okay, barrett our esteemed guest today is a writer and editor specializing in biography and memoir He grew up in London and studied English at Jesus College, Cambridge. In 2010, he edited the First World War memoirs of pacifist saboteur Richard Skirth, published as Reluctant Tommy. He's co-author with uh, Nula Calvi, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Of a trio of Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers. I don't even have one. Uh, The Sugar Girls, which was ranked second in the history bestsellers of 2012. G.I. Brides, which was also a New York Times bestseller in America. Um, and the girl who went to war his first solo title men men of letters the post office heroes who fought the great war was nominated for the people's book prize and as i'm sure he'll tell us all he's written a star trek book as well called i have yeah <laughs> exactly uh, it's called star trek the human frontier it's it's about it's actually it's an old book it's the the first book i ever wrote um funnily enough it was um I wrote it with my mother. My mother's a, uh, an English professor. And this was when I was uh, in my sort of late teens and I was quite into Star Trek then. And, and she was kind of interested in Star Trek too. So we ended up doing this book together, looking at kind of um, literary, uh, historical, the, the, the kind of influences on Star Trek and, and Star Trek's kind of cultural um, uh, meaning in a sense. Um, and so that book came out in uh, around 2000 and then last year for the you know big 50th anniversary the publishers wanted an updated edition so i went back and uh, rewatched a lot of uh, you know enterprise and kind of late voyager and so on because that was the sort of cutoff point for the original the first edition and, and tried to sort of weave those things in so the uh, and, and also the, the new version of the book has a much better cover because Aaron Harvey, uh, the wonderful Trek FM designer, designed the cover and, and did a really great job on it. 
Excellent. So do you want to, before we kind of maybe dive into the topic, tell us a bit about your Star Trek history and, you know, mm-hmm. favorite shows or episodes or how you got into it and what kind of, you know, for most of us just doing a podcast or maybe listening to one is kind of the extent of our fandom. For you, you've actually written a book, got it published not once but twice. That's kind of a pretty <laughs> awesome going for a fan credit. Well, I think once you got it published once, getting it published the second time is probably a bit easier. <laughs> but um, yeah, I sort of I got into Star Trek um, really when I was about I guess sort of eleven or twelve. I I'd, I'd seen uh, a few episodes. I think I think I'd seen a few episodes of the original series growing up, but I'd never really. Uh, I have a sort of very vague memory of, of seeing maybe The Devil in the Dark. I think at a friend's house, but it, it didn't really kind of make that much of an impression on me. But it was more when I um. I had a, a while off school when I was uh, about 11 or 12. I had a bout of glandular fever, or mono, they call it in America, Richard. You might know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was off school for ages, basically, and extremely bored because I was basically in bed. I was too tired even to read a lot of the time. So I was watching, uh, Lee will know what I'm talking about. I, was, I basically lived on a diet of this morning, day in, day out, <laughs> watching it from beginning to end. This is a you know, daytime TV show that... You don't necessarily want to watch the whole of, let alone, you know, day after day. Um, and then I started, I, I'd seen a few episodes of Next Generation at my cousin's house because they lived in um, Dublin. They had a Sky subscription. So they were getting new TNG that I don't think the BBC had got yet. Um, and I realized, this might interest you, Lee, that the local blockbuster video store actually had all the Next Gen up to this was probably like season six or so. It was probably around that time. They had all the old videos. So I used to get my mum to go there every few days, basically, and bring me back a, a stack of uh, these old TNG VHS tapes, which I think they had. I think you, you can probably tell me this is right. They were like four episodes to a tape yep. rather than two, actually, the, the blockbuster yep. ones, right? Yeah, I have those covers uh, in my my file. Um, yeah. All but all good things was the rest of them were all four episodes. So yeah, right, I, I'll right, make sure to yeah. send you a wee link to those files. There you go. <laughs> so that was basically my kind of Star Trek education was just sitting in bed day after day, plowing my way through these tapes and, you know, kind of getting myself caught up on the on next generation that way. Um, and then I think that must have been around the time that DS9 was launching. So I sort of got into that from the beginning uh, and Voyager obviously from the beginning too. Um, and that was sort of my... That was my kind of early fandom. And then I guess um, I watched Voyager through to the end. I, I gave Enterprise a try. And then I don't know if it was, part, it was partly the show, but it was also partly I was sort of going to university around that time. It was, I kind of drifted away from it, basically. I think the combination of Insurrection, Nemesis, plus Enterprise kind of killed it a bit for me. Uh, and so I went into a bit of a sort of um, a, a, less, uh, a, a less hardcore fan period uh from then on for quite a while i, I still had you know i had a load of the dvds i'd watch the odd episode or film now and then but i wasn't it wasn't really a big part of my life and then um a couple of years ago my son was born and basically he um he wouldn't sleep at night the only way we could get him to sleep was he would sleep like cuddled up on someone's chest uh so basically i would stay up a lot of the nights through the night with him in a sling on my chest trying to stay awake because obviously if I, I was sitting on the sofa and living if I fell asleep then you know we'd fall off the sofa and crack the baby's head open um and so I was desperately looking for things to kind of basically keep me awake through the night I had a set of headphones I was watching the tv on so I wouldn't wake him up and so I started going through my old uh DVDs basically I started watching Next Gen from the beginning again not expecting 
very much of it because I had a sort of memory of these, you know, early seasons being pretty ropey and actually really enjoyed it. You know, even the, the good episodes, but also, you know, even the less good episodes, it was quite an amazing experience. And I sort of got back into it that way. And then I got into listening to Trek FM podcasts as well. Um, they were very good for the like late night feeds and, and that sort of thing, especially to the journey because it was a perfect sort of short, chirpy podcast, just the right length for, you know, when you get woken up at three in the morning and have to go and make a bottle of milk and, and need something to keep you going that isn't caffeinated. Uh, so, so I sort of got into Trek FM like that and that kind of encouraged me to go back and, you know, watch a few more Star Trek episodes. And uh, and then really, I guess, doing, well, partly working on the second edition of the book, I, I got much more into it again um, last year, but also I decided to do the From There to Here complete sort of complete works uh, rewatch because um, I've had a bit of a head start anyway with the, with the episodes I've been watching um, and that was just an amazing experience really going back and watch you know watching every single episode it, it was uh, at times it was a bit of a trial I mean it's it's a lot to get through in a year but that was just an amazing kind of nostalgia trip a lot of it for me you know going back to these episodes and in many cases I remembered where I'd seen them the first time uh, uh, but then also coming back to them with kind of new eyes after a period of um of time because i guess they were like the those sort of favorite episodes that maybe i had gone back to in the meantime but then other ones that i literally probably hadn't seen since they were first broadcast and you know as a you know when you're in your mid-30s watching something you're, you're viewing it through different lenses really to if you're a teenager um and you know appreciating different things picking up on different sort of themes or different aspects of those stories um and that i guess sort of brings me up to now that's such an excellent story there uh, Duncan so thank you so much for coming on first and foremost to share your story but that's not where it ends that whenever we get someone to come in and uh, join the team for a week or two um, we always like to let throw the, the forum open to them so you've picked quite an interesting topic uh, for today's episode Duncan do you want to tell people what the, the what we're going to be discussing today sure well i was i was sort of racking my brains because you asked me to come up with a topic trying to think well, what could we talk about um and i don't know richard whether this made it all the way to america but there have been quite a lot of uh publicity recently about uh prince harry talking about his uh feelings about losing his mother at, at an early age and his kind of you know the counseling that he received for that and so on um and i'm not uh, i mean i'm not a massive fan of the royal family generally but now and then I think they do something kind of vaguely useful and this certainly seemed to be one of those times where uh, Harry was trying to you know bring attention to an important issue talking about mental health I suppose sort of trying to destigmatize the issue of mental health a bit um, which is obviously a you know a hot topic um, and so it sort of got me thinking about you know next gen in a way was a, a bit of a turning point I suppose for Star Trek because of you know partly because of just having Council Troy as this main character trying to integrate the idea of mental health into this kind of military uh, setup. So I sort of thought maybe it'd be interesting to just talk about the ways that Next Gen looks at mental health issues, the you know the way that the character of Troy is used in particular, um, and kind of how that differentiates it from the other Star Trek series, you know, both the original series but also later series like DS9 and Voyager, which I think treat mental health issues quite differently. I always think with, like, I think Deep Space Nine almost, in a way, deals with mental health much better. I think mm -hmm. with Next Generation in particular, in terms of maybe how they use Troy, it seems very much in that kind of 80s idea of kind of, it's almost like life coaching in a way, that 
I, I never kind of look at and with Troy and stuff the work I see her do like I very rarely ever see her do like one-to-one sort of sessions we see them here and there and maybe Descent and things like that but in terms of that you know she is a counsellor but she's on familiar terms with pretty much every character that we see use it mm. which kind of is a bit suspect um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what, I suppose when you're on a ship you know you've got no choice really um, but I was a view kind of Troy more as a bit of a life coach that she's there advising the captain you know and she, you know essentially just using her telepathic skills to go he's a bit annoyed and she gives the odd little bit of advice based on that but I was just here more as a perhaps of a life coach and that Deep Space Nine, kind of based on the writing, they real in things like Waltz, for example, mm. um, really go into kind of mental health more on the nose as opposed to perhaps the eighties version where it's a bit more floral. I I think. Yeah, well, I guess one of the things with Troy is is there's a there's a whole sort of side of her that we don't see, if you know what I mean, because because we mainly see her on the bridge. We see her now and then counselling people, but you sort of feel like there's got to be that's got to take up a lot of her time. And, and often you sort of see the beginning of what seems like a kind of interesting therapeutic uh, sort of discussion. And that's the end of the episode. And then because it's TNG and because it's, you know, very episodic, it's forgotten by the next week. So, for example, um, I was recently watching The Mind's Eye. At the end of The Mind's Eye, there's a counselling session between Troy and Geordie. And Geordie's saying, you know, she she quite cleverly nudges him to sort of realise that he's to recover his his real memories of what's happened because he's been you know brainwashed uh, by these Romulans and he he has these false memories that have kind of been uh, implanted in some way and, and and she's trying to recover the real ones and she says you know basically that this is going to be a long process it's going to be difficult to to reconstruct your memories but we'll get there in the end of course we don't see that you know so we don't see the weeks and, and months of work that she puts in there um, and you know partly I suppose that's because it is a you know, at, at the end of the day, it's a kind of action, adventure, exploration kind of show. It's not a, you know, it's not, um, what was that show called with Gabriel Byrne? Was it called In Treatment? That was basically just, just counselling sessions week after week. Oh, I missed that, that one. You know the one I, mean? I can imagine that being on one of the backwater channels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was quite interesting, but you're basically just watching people's counselling sessions, you, you know, one week after the next. But I mean, I think the other thing with Troy is that there's a kind of... Um, it, there's a weird tension maybe the, the idea of bringing her in and bringing in this sort of the idea of counselling as being important you know that was obviously there and that was obviously it was kind of a, a sign of the times maybe because you know psychology had become a lot more in America particularly a lot more of a kind of normal a sort of normalised thing do you know what I mean like everyone has their shrink or whatever it was a kind of that was sort of part of the culture it was developing in that way and I think there was this kind of feeling you know, from Gene Roddenberry, maybe particularly that 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 should be recognised that mental health was an important aspect of you know of a functioning starship. I was just looking up actually the the original um, uh, season one Bible, the, the writers and directors guide, and it's quite interesting to read what they what they say about Troy. Shall I just read it to you here? Yeah. The, this was this was so this was a sort of dis- description basically of the character for any writers who wanted to write for. It says, Troy serves as the starship's counsellor, where her betazoid abilities are especially useful. Her starship speciality might have been known in earlier days as psychologist or psychiatrist, but in the 24th century, the science of human behaviour has grown into a much more precise and important discipline. A starship is as dependent on efficiently operating human relationships as on efficient mechanisms and electronic circuits. 
It also says something about the growing maturity of humanity that Starfleet graduates actually welcome the ship's counsellors' insights on even their own performance and solicit the advice and expertise in the same way as they would a medical officer or other highly trained specialists. So you sort of get a sense there. There's this real... um, you know, it's a sort of decision that's been taken. It's kind of going to mean something, the idea that they have these counsellors on board and they take that seriously. But then at the same time, there's this weird issue that that they sort of won't really go there. Do you know what I mean? That's my sense with, with TNG. Yeah. And when you're saying Deep Space Nine deals with it better, I think Deep Space Nine is more willing to show our characters, uh, you know, the main char- core characters having... And Voyager as well, actually, having psychologically difficult experiences, experiencing genuine mental health problems, whereas TNG always sort of skirts around it one way or the other. Um, and it, it it sort of, you see it a bit in, in um, th- there's that episode, which I think was, was kind of a bit of a... Um, is not a, not a turning. I was going to say a turning point. Is a non-turning point, but a kind of sticking point, I suppose. Was the one with um, Jeremy Astor, the boy whose whose mother is killed, and and Worf sort mm-hmm. of takes him on. And there was a big argument around that um, when that episode was being written. That basically Gene Roddenberry had a massive problem with it because he felt that he claimed that in the you know by the twenty fourth century people wouldn't suffer with grief in the same way. It wouldn't be such a problem because these evolved humans would sort of. Uh, it seems almost like they'd have become Vulcans by that point. They'd have become masters of their emotions in some way so that even a, you know, a child wouldn't be expected to react in the same way to, to losing his mother as a child today would. And I think, you know, a lot of the writers basically felt, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, for a start, how can we write a, a TV show if people can't react in normal human ways to, to traumatic experiences? Um so I suppose that's maybe that that might give us a bit of an insight in a way into some of the problems with Troy as a character and with the way that Next Gen represents mental health is there's this sort of slightly split personality. They want to do the right thing. They want to incorporate mental health and make it an important issue. But at the same time, they can't really face the idea of getting into the kind of the sort of ugly side of that or the, the kind of nitty gritty of it. It's, it's, it has to be sort of skirted around one way or the other. I think in a way that it maybe has the cop out that TNG is very much peacetime, family time, mm. whereas Deep Space Nine, they go to war, they're on this outpost in the middle of nowhere, Voyager, they're stranded in the Delta Quadrant, so they're kind of, you know, their mental health is probably much more strained and frayed, um, whereas in TNG, you know, they have very little to complain about, I guess. <laughs> Although, or at least uh, Troy did her job right. <laughs> that's true. Maybe she's just such just, a great counselor that you know everyone's very well adjusted. They didn't even have to do an episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, kind of obviously with it, like being kind of like you know a military navy kind of organization. D- did you kind of recognize, say, from your kind of experiences, Richard, someone of Troy's ilk and kind of your military setup that you've got experience of, or is the idea of Troy, you know, helping and advising a bit? eerie theory you know honestly i really think that uh tng really missed a very golden opportunity to actually tackle uh mental health and i really wish gene ronnerberry realized that um mental health is probably never gonna is probably never going to um ever uh disappear because i think in the early 90s late 80s they didn't really see it as uh, a chemical imbalance because that's ultimately what it is i mean it based on your experiences it's basically a chemical imbalance and and then you know everything goes haywire all all over the place or at least or at least that's my understanding it uh, of it um and i really wished that 
they would they would understand because I mean uh, at that I think at that time really PTSD really wasn't understand it was called shell shock before uh, beforehand and it actually I think it recently just became PTSD and now PTS um, whichever one you choose uh, but like it's uh, it, I mean it, you, you yeah like you I mean they could have they could have tackled all kinds of issues I honestly think that Voyager did the best when it came to like mental issues especially when it talking about the ethical protocols for the doctor, uh, especially when he was uh, going through his manic, uh, manic insanity or something like that, and basically trying to work through what he did to Seven. And actually, that is one of my favorite episodes of Voyager because of that, because the crew was there. They were there day in, day out in the hol- holodeck with him, and they were definitely uh, trying to make sure that he got it all of it out, which is, you know, in a safe space, that is. And uh, I think that's great uh i mean so (laughs) dipping into my own personal life um coming back from iraq uh it was uh very difficult to adjust uh you know going going from you know high speed you know uh day in day out missions and stuff like that and having to deal with uh people that um no i'm not i'm not gonna say deal uh more like cooperating because we did cooperate with a lot of people out there we got a lot of stuff done out there um but like rebuild in lots of rebuilding um and helping out uh families and whatnot but like it, and then of course also the bad stuff too but i don't want to get to that <laughs> but like uh when i got back in uh 2004 uh you know everything seemed all right it it's it felt like it was a dream when i got back uh back to base and, or back to Italy is where I was stationed out of. And uh, when I came home, every, everything just still felt like a dream. And I think when I got out of the military in 04 um, and actually settled into civilian life, it got really difficult. Uh, as in, you know, you know, sort of like, why am I here sort of thing? You know, it's not like, but like when I went to, and I, you know, I, when I went to counseling and everything and try, try to figure things out, because I had more anxiety issues than I had anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but like... Uh, you know, going through, um, you know, we have uh, here in the U S we have vet centers, mm-hmm. uh, basically, um, in, in a lot, in most, most of the bigger counties have one, one or two vet centers. Obviously the smaller counties can't afford that, but, um, yeah, we have a lot of volunteers and vet centers, but like, ha- but basically those vet centers are basically a safe space where you can vent. Now, unfortunately it's only like two hours, an hour or two or something like that. And sometimes you can't get everything out in two hours or an hour. Um, but like, that's, that's ultimately what I loved about, I mean, that would be, I mean, the, the implication or the uh, things you could do with a holodeck, you could be there for hours <laughs> and talk about all your issues and get it all out in one fail swoop. Well, maybe not one fail swoop, but basically, I mean, in, in like however long you want to do it. And that's what I loved about, that's what I loved about that episode is that they, that he could vent all his worries um, it basically to anyone or even a hologram um, that could interact with them and be a counselor or something like that. And um, yeah, but I mean, like I said, I mean, the, the uh, Voyager did that. I mean, granted, Deep Space Nine is definitely one of those episodes, uh, one of those uh, series that, that I attach to pretty hard to, mainly because of the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's I've been through all that, especially when Nog lost his leg. It was... It, it you know I I didn't lose any limbs but you know you kind of I mean it, when we're all out there we're you know it's kind of like what we we lose 
we lose something, a, a piece of ourselves. Like what was it? Uh, Jarhead is a perfect example. We're always out in the desert and we will never leave. And in a sense, that's kind of how I feel, you know, about uh, when we deal, when we talk about like uh, PTSD issues and, you know, what you leave on the battlefield and, uh, and whatnot. But like, I mean, Star Trek is fantastic. <clears throat> Star Trek is fantastic, especially Deep Space Nine and Voyager. I, I really wish they would have done something with TNG. I really did. And Enterprise is another good one, too. Mm -hmm. I really like what they did in Enterprise as well. Lots of um, lots of discussion about, uh, I don't know about mental, I don't know exactly about mental health, but they do talk about um, more how people deal with it, uh, tragedy. You know, some people avoid it, some people, and obviously you can tell, like, um, talk, um Tucker didn't want to deal with it because his sister died and wanted to basically bury the, his feelings. Whereas everyone basically on the crew wanted him to talk about it and they definitely wanted to, uh, you know, just basically get it out. I mean, and it's and, and that's great therapy, especially when you have family that cares. I mean, I have a great supportive family here that, you know, they, we've talked about it quite a bit and, <clears throat> and we talked about the horrors of, of war and everything, but and even even I mean, you don't necessarily have to be a, a veteran of a war or anything like that. You can experience any kind of personal trauma and basically go through what I went through. Mm. Um, and it's I mean, it's you know, it sucks. <laughs> I'm curious. I, I mean, because. Because you, you, it's interesting. You're talking about like when you come back, or, or when you sort of return to civilian life, or whatever you, and through the veterans associations and so on. There's counselling available. I mean, I'm kind of curious. What was it like when you were actually in the forces? Because obviously, I guess like on a, you know, in Star Trek, and the it, the, the big thing is is having the counsellor on the ship. So it's a sort of ongoing thing. I mean, was mental health something that your like your superior officers discussed with you? Was there was it a kind of, was there a taboo around it? Was there a stigma around it? Was it something that was kind of acknowledged as as a kind of a risk of of what you were doing? I mean, I'm just curious, like, what was the, because I guess historically it would have been very much a kind of taboo subject. Um, and obviously maybe what they're trying to show in TNG, you know, whether or not that it, it kind of works in terms of how they develop it is that, you know, that mental health isn't taboo anymore and that, you know, it's sort of understood that, having a counsellor there so that at the end of a, a battle or at the end of a, you, you know, literally on hand, essentially, so that people can go and see her. Um, I'm just sort of curious how that, you know, lines up with your experience in a, you know, in the contemporary military and, you, you know, how how those issues are sort of dealt with. You know, that's actually very interesting you say that because uh, it, uh, obviously we know, uh, Gene Roddenberry was was in was War Two, I think it was. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. it was a bombardier or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so he would probably know about, uh, more about this than I would, mm. um, and mainly because of his uh, uh, what generation he was a part of. Uh, so, yes, it's it's considered it is taboo. It's very cons it, I mean, before before like let's say my dad's era, uh, which is Vietnam or like Vietnam and, and previous, mm. or it, and even filtered down to uh, Desert Storm as well as post nine eleven. Um, it's, <sighs> all right, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> it's a pansy freaking. uh, it basically, it's a pansy, uh, 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 thing to uh, say to someone mm -hmm. or uh, it's, it's basically, yeah, it's basically a, a pansy way to get out is basically how we call it right, or okay. in the service. It's basically you're, you're, 
you're weak. You're completely weak. Mm -hmm. And I can't even tell you how many veterans, Vietnam era and above, and even to this day, uh, Desert Storm, uh, they... A lot of people are. Uh, it, a lot of people don't want to come out and say, "Oh, I have PTSD," mm-hmm. because a lot of a lot of the veterans who say they don't, <laughs> and I mean that in quote in you know quotes, quotations that it, it's just it, that they're you're you're lesser of a person than you know I am or am. It's like I'm not going to say I'm not. I mean, and you know, it reminds me of an argument that. Um, of I had uh, with with uh, with some of my former unit uh, members and um you know going after going through my issues and everything and I was like you know everyone has a different boiling point and yours might be higher than mine mm-hmm. or this person or someone else but eventually you'll get there if you have enough trauma mm-hmm. and that's ultimately I mean when I got out it, you know I I had nothing but support so I I never came I never came home well no I got accused as a baby killing Dulles, but yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I got back from Iraq, uh, I got, uh, uh, I came in, I can I confronted basically, well, I didn't confront, I ran into more like it, uh, into an activist group, an anti-war activist group mm-hmm. and basically got called a baby killer, uh, and everything, even though, you know, I joined before the war even started, but whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> I did my job. So, um, but yeah, like it's, it's, it sucks. It, it's, it sucks that, you know, people have to go through that. And, um, uh, it's, it's one of those things that I, I mean, it's, it's gotten less and less, um, uh, over the years. And I think, uh, to this day, it's actually not, I, I haven't heard anyone call anyone names, call them weak or anything like that or, or whatnot. And I have a, quite a few veteran friends who have been overseas, um, but yeah, like it's, well, maybe not to their faces. I don't know if they do it behind their backs. I don't, I honestly don't So know. what would be, I so, mean, but like, so, so I'm just curious, say when you were out in Iraq, I mean, was there any kind of mental health provision on hand in the field or, or would it be very much something that would have to happen, you know, back home in America? Um, I mean, cause obviously no, you have, really. you have medics in the field, don't you? If someone's physically injured, you, you know, you've got someone who knows how right. to stitch them up or whatever. But so if there's the psychological stuff is very much something that you bring back. I mean, it's in, I'm just thinking from a Star Trek perspective, it's kind of interesting because you see, you know, so we have the counselor on the ship who's kind of in the thick of it and, uh, it, you know, they're day by day. But in a way, what you often see is it's, I'm thinking like, say, of the episode Family, you know, Picard's way of dealing with that kind of emotional trauma really is um, he doesn't deal with it with Counselor Troy on the ship. It comes out when he goes home. And, and you see the same thing in Enterprise with Archer, don't you, that he has the very similar episode uh, home after the whole Zindi uh, storyline. And he's kind of coming to terms with his own sort of guilt and his, his feelings about the things that he's done. And it's sort of it is very much that sort of thing of, of like trying to readjust into not necessarily civilian life, but kind of ordinary life. So like for Archer, he can't, he finds it hard to adapt to the way that people are, are treating him. You know, they're saying he's a hero and he saved their lives and so on. He feels like he's, he's failed kind of morally. And I suppose with Picard, there's this sort of element of, um, cause he's considering quitting Starfleet. He's considering, you know, throwing in his career and, and taking up a civilian career instead and it's it's this that sort of right. brings out these these issues. So there is this sort of sense that it's when they're, it, the separation maybe is necessary to to bring that kind of to bring that beginning of that sort of healing process, or at least acknowledging what the problem is um, to begin. I mean, it's interesting with Picard. I was thinking about this, although 
it's a, another strange contradiction. Although he obviously values Troy very highly, uh, he he's very respectful towards her. You know, she has a big position of you know symbolic position on the bridge at his side. Um, but he's actually not very good at, at talking to her. I mean, I was thinking both, say both in generations and first contact. I mean, in first contact, she's that she's down on the planet, so they don't have much to do with each other. But he he's a bit in denial when he does have more serious kind of mental health uh, sort of episodes. He he kind of pushes her away. I mean, in generations, it, she, he does talk to her in the in the end, and there's that very moving scene where he where he talks about um, having lost his, his brother and his, and his nephew. But but before you get to that point, several times he's, he's said to her twice, I think, oh, no, don't worry, I'm all right. You know, it's fine. There's nothing wrong. And then she comes to see him and, and she says, you know, what do you, what do you, what, what's happened? And he says, oh, it's, it's just a family business or something. He tries to brush it under the carpet. So even this captain mm-hmm. who, on the face of it, acknowledges the importance of mental health, who kind of recognises that, that these things... You know, are not taboo and are not to be stigmatized. When it comes to himself, he can't really. He's sort of in denial about it. You know, he can't. He can't really engage with it. And in first contact, you see that to an even greater extent. You know, he's really lost the plot basically, and he's you, you know he's so resistant to to being told that by by his friends, by his colleagues, by people who've known him for a while. And it's only finally in the end, you know, Lily Sloan manages to get through to him by sort of smacking him around the head with it practically by you know pushing him to this extreme where he suddenly kind of see i suppose sees what he's come to sees what a a desperate situation he's come to and then he's able to kind of uh begin to process that in a a more healthy way i suppose but um so it's sort of interesting you've got this character on the one hand seems to be very uh you know um responsive to this whole idea of of therapy and, and talking and 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 the mental health needs of the crew, but at the same time, when it comes to himself, isn't really able to ask for help. I think right. that's kind and of I... common, to be honest. Like as someone that has studied and done, carried out counselling, for example, um, mm. the yeah, I think it's that is very common. For example, I think the the difficulty with Troy being so familiar with the crew is it makes it very difficult. Mm. Like I can only speak from my point of view, like. When I was doing like um, kind of counselling training, for example, mm. you go into like little groups, triads, and what you would do is you would play the counsellor, mm-hmm. counselling one of your fellow students, and someone would watch from the group and mm-hmm. take notes, and then you would move around in the circle, and then you would go off and have lunch together, or you would go back to the classroom, and then you would do the same thing next week and next week, and quite a lot of the the like kind of my fellow students some of them would be so, so open just straight away just talking about their feelings and others like myself and i can only speak for myself and i'd be thinking like why do i want to like we would have a, a practice session for example where like the topic would be a tough part of your childhood or something mm-hmm. like that. i'm thinking like why do i want to tell someone <laughs> a really personal maybe horrific or upsetting thing mm-hmm. and then go okay then move around and then I'll go see you at lunchtime. And that person would look at you perhaps thinking like, oh yeah, that's Lee there. He, mm-hmm. That thing happened to him as a kid. They might pity you or might judge you or anything like that. Whereas if you go to see, say, a counsellor that 
you know, is just strictly to you and you're not going to see them kicking around in your office place next to you in the couch, mm-hmm. you'd be thinking, like, you'd be more prone to be open. And, like, with what the kind of job and work I've, I've done, like, we have to get counselling as part of it because, you know, if you're counselling people, you've got to make sure that you are mentally okay to go off and do the same thing. Mm. So when I do that, when I get that, I go off and meet someone that I don't know. I don't know who they are or, well, I know who they are, but I don't, they're not someone that I'm going to bump into in the canteen having small talk while waiting for chips or mm. I'm going to see them on the you know the class night out or anything. There's someone that is strictly there as a counselling role. And I think the line with Troy and like being so familiar with the crew makes that very difficult for people to come forward. Like it's it's almost probably like what we probably are with wives and partners sometimes you know mm. oh is everything okay oh yeah everything's fine <laughs> whereas we'd maybe go see like one of our friends that we've maybe not seen in a while and we're more prone to then going hey uh, you know oh, things have been a bit tough lately yeah. and you're, 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 yeah. you're more open you don't want to face have someone looking at you you know maybe feeling sorry for you or knowing what's really upsetting you and i think that's where the the counselor role is more difficult in the way they've got it set up in the next generation and i don't think it's i think if i was picard and i was maybe facing an issue would i be so inclined to mm. say to troy yeah mm. perhaps not maybe that's why he he was so repressed <laughs> from like family onwards about uh this borg issue and that's why yeah. it all exploded when the Borg came out that he, he was like well, i don't want to tell troy i'm you know feeling under pressure you know she might feel that i'm not suitable for doing this job as captain mm. and might put something in you know these things would probably likely be in a, a guy like picard's mind well, there's a theory. It's not only did she crash the Enterprise, but she she caused the whole you know crisis of first contact by being too friendly. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah. I, I think there's an element with Troy of occasionally she can seem a bit um, sometimes like for comic effect or so on. They they have her doing things which seem slightly unprofessional. Um, and I, I mean, I don't I don't want to you know emphasize that too much, but I'm just thinking she can be a bit sort of gossipy and a bit sort of. I don't, she, she's very much not the kind of traditional Freudian sort of cool, detached kind of counsellor. She's a very warm... She, she is kind of like a friend as much as... You, there's a kind of similarity with, I suppose, Guinan, who is performing the same role in a kind of a more informal context. And you do occasionally get with Troy... Um, I mean, I'm thinking, actually, this is a Voyager episode, not a Next Gen episode, but there's that the, the one where she's counselling Dr Zimmerman and the Doctor, and she basically throws her hands up in the air and says, well, your problem is you're both jerks, and walks out of the room. <laughs> and I mean, like, it's funny, you know, it's a good, it's a nice comedy moment, but at the same time, if we're supposed to see her as essentially, a, you know, like, as, as it said in that document, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whatever, there are kind of professional boundaries that that would seem to be you know crossing in a way um and i don't know whether that's just partly that she's at the mercy of you know writers kind of fishing for a bit of of comedy or a bit of comic relief and and the idea of the counselor kind of behaving inappropriately is part of that but i suppose that's that's kind of the danger and 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 you're right you know she is quite friendly with them all i mean they're a friendly crew and and you know she's one of them so why shouldn't she be but at the same time if you're geordie laforge and you've spent months talking to her about your problems with women and lack of confidence and and so on then you know do you want to be having a drink with her in the bar and and (laughs) do you know what i mean with all of that in the background yeah yeah yeah. I actually did the from there to here on that episode, um, and I I put on my counselor cap and said that Troy was <laughs> negligent to be acting like that. Even if she's joking, it's like that, things like that can really put people off. Like 
going towards counsellors or viewing right, counsellors yeah. as a bad experience. I, I've worked with people mm-hmm. before that they were like, well, I didn't want to maybe, you know, work with, uh, like, go back to counselling or be with a counsellor because I told someone my problem one time and this counsellor maybe laughed or was dismissive of it. And right, I know right. it's all a, a bit of a joke and stuff, but if I put on my serious cap, I mm-hmm. would say, well, that that kind of can be prone to why putting people off counselling, for example. And, it, you know, to go back to an, an earlier point, um, I had a, a person that I knew that worked in kind of uh, did some stuff in Afghanistan. And uh, as far as I'm aware, they had the same approach that out there in the field, there wasn't really the mental health support. Mm. I imagine it's probably changed a bit now, surely. Um, but it was more yeah. focused on coming back. And I think, you know, th- that's perhaps you know i'm not too sure you know i, I definitely get they do need counselors on deep spaceships because i yeah. probably would go mad working on one of these and i wouldn't want to be going on a five-year mission and then after the fact getting counseling when you know my mental health could essentially cause the destruction of a ship or yeah. Yeah. you know cr- crisis really yeah yeah when I, when i was in in uh 2000 when i went overseas to, to that in 2003 um, they actually uh, didn't have anything like that. Um, from my understanding, is that they do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in the army, so in the field, it's a little different. Uh, uh, it's kind of it's kind of difficult to do that, especially when bases move and uh, you know operations change and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, um, I do know that uh, the. The person that we relied more on was the chaplain. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came out if if say for instance, I think. Unfortunately, he uh, he visited Charlie Company more than us, and that was Alpha Company, and they were uh, they you know, took a lot of casualties, uh, unfortunately, um, and he was there all the time. Uh, well, not all the time, a lot of the time. He we barely saw him, but like um, yeah, it definitely uh, fell to the chaplain because I think he was the only one that actually had any kind of counseling experience. Because yeah, like I said, uh, we had a medical team and uh, a, a medical uh, platoon, and uh, they. They all they could do was you know patch you up physically. Mm-hmm. I mean mentally, no. We I don't. Yeah, as far as I could tell, they they had no one like that. But if someone got bad, uh, or anything like, uh, got was was a danger to everyone else, uh, mainly uh, because of their main their their mental issues or whatever 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 was going on, whether it be personal or combat, uh, they actually got medevaced out. Mm-hmm. Uh, in um medical evacuation that's what medevac means um but like they they usually got um medevac to the next biggest hospital and we did have a hospital over there and i think it was uh it was either in balad or or baghdad it might have been at kuwait uh, over by over at kuwait but they 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 flew them out to whatever ho- whatever the nearest hospital was uh that had those facilities and um yeah, that's how we dealt it. Now, I don't know about Navy. I'm, I'm assuming they do. I mean, as big as the ship is, ships are, I would assume they would. Because mm-hmm. you have station, a stationary <laughs> point for having someone have an office or something like mm-hmm. that. Exactly, it. yeah. It's a little different in the Army. You can't really have a fixed position. Have a tent, a counseling <laughs> so, tent with, with double-thick yeah. uh, canvas. <laughs> It'd be very difficult yeah. with the kind of incense sticks to be able to keep them kind of just burning away. You can just imagine the wind blowing through in the sand and just like... You know, yeah. trying to counsel someone and thinking like, oh God, there's some sand in my shoes and just like try and act interested. You're, you're focused on what they're saying and you're like, God damn, get this sand out of my boots. Yeah, I guess it, it's that interesting what, what, what Richard, what you're saying about the chaplain taking on that role in a, a sort of semi-official capacity. I suppose that's what you see with Guinan, you know, being the bartender and being the listener and, and you know, and Guinan very much does perform a counselling role, you know, to Picard. She's the kind of 
the voice of reason that he'll listen to. There's that episode where she is basically counselling Beverly, uh, you know, when she pretends she's got this tennis injury and she needs to see her. And in fact, it's a complete ruse. And I don't know whether maybe partly, you know, Troy as a character suffered from the fact that they brought, you know, that Whoopi Goldberg turned up and said, basically, write me a part in this series. Uh, And they came up with this part for her. And it kind of, it slightly it steals a bit of what really ought to be Troy's role in some ways that you've got this other character who's who's sort of performing a very similar function but in a less formal setup um right. and i don't know whether you know because there were a lot of issues around Troy in the early years of TNG i think i mean marina sertes said she basically she thought she was being fired uh, essentially at the end of the first season and then you know, I guess because Gates McFadden left uh, and Denise Crosby left, you, you know, they kind of they couldn't fire her, really, because she was the only woman they had left and they couldn't really get rid of all right. three of them at once. Um, but so I guess there was always that sort of sense they weren't quite sure what to do with her. And, and then they brought in this other character played by a big movie star who, you know, maybe to some extent stole a bit of her, took up a bit of the space that maybe Troy might have been expected to occupy. Well, you know, and my only issue is, and I'm, you know, being, you know, someone that's that's been through uh, counseling for for any kind of PTSD, um, my go-to person is not a young person. Mm. I, I'm not saying that mm. she wouldn't be able to do the job, and I'm not saying anyone that ha- that is younger or looks younger or what or whatever. Um, you know, can't do the job um, as well. I mean, I guess it's, I guess you would have to prove that, but like. You know, it's like it. That's like me going to my brother for advice for something that I know he's not going to know. Yeah. Whereas my dad would know more than anyone else. It's it's sort of like that kind of um, uh, uh, situation, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's how I see it. As in, I mean, I'm not saying that. Uh, no, uh, I'm not saying younger counselors are. I mean, I, I'm sure that's different for a lot of people, but like for me, that's that's how I would see it. And to be quite honest, I don't think. I don't think that Guinan took away as much as um, as as probably a lot of people do think, um, but I also don't. I, I mean, I, I also don't think that uh, 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 Marina Sirs's character uh, did enough mm-hmm. when, it, especially when it came to counseling. Because it, I mean, uh, other than you know her, her cleavage, I mean, I think that was the only reason why she was there, or at least for the first season, first two seasons. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, and it. it it's great. It's great to look at, at, you know. But after a while, it's like, really. <laughs> I think there's something to be said about uh, the idea that um, officers and men go find uh, help and hope in the bar over, over <laughs> seeking counselling. I'm sure there's there's something definitely to be said there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, totally. I mean, I guess what you were saying about a young counsellor as well. You know, you see that again with Esri Jacks in DS9, don't you? Who seems even younger. I mean, I don't know. I can't remember what her it's like pretty much her first assignment isn't it she's fresh out of you know doing her psychology training or whatever and i think that that is very difficult for someone to come in in a situation like that you know and be counseling people who've experienced things that that they haven't well i mean, I mean obviously counselors deal with people who've experienced things they haven't but maybe that's one reason why right. a lot of people go into counseling as a second career don't they it's a sw- you know people make that switch maybe later in life when they've had more kind of personal experiences themselves um and I guess with Guinan trying to get into counselling, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> I guess with Guinan, you know, she's she's got that uh, to a massive extent, hasn't she? Because she's, you know, we know she's hundreds of years old, and she's she's got this whole sort of wisdom. And um... but I suppose, I mean, you, you were talking about the chaplain. I mean, the chaplains. 
I mean, I don't know about your chaplain, but like, I'm just still thinking historically, like in the First World War or Second World War, the the company chaplains might be, you know, only in their early 20s too. Um, I suppose maybe by being part of the church, they've got this kind of, uh, there's an association with something ancient. Do you know what I mean? And that they're maybe they're supposed to be mm. wise beyond their years and so on. Um, and maybe for a counsellor, that's harder. But um, I don't know. It's an interesting... Well, in... in, in our... Go no, ahead. no, sorry. No, sorry. Just, I didn't know what I was saying. No, uh, well, I was going to say is like our our chaplain is that was actually, I don't want to stereotype. I mean, he had a lot of gray hair, so I'm <laughs> assuming he was probably in his fifties mm, <laughs> right. or something like that. And it's it, it, yeah, it, it, it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard to uh, you know take advice from someone that's younger than you, mm. especially. I mean, it's like, and then when you get to that age when you're the elder. It's like, uh, who do you take advice from? I mean, I'm not saying that. Mm. Obviously, everyone's everyone's experiences are different. Uh, I'm not taking it away from that, but I mean, there's only so much a book or training can take you. I mean, it, life experience is, you know, paid in uh, you know, paid in gold. Mm. <laughs> you know? I suppose from a, from someone that, that kind of in that line, like I think I, I can feel that way. Like I'm a well, I'm young. I'm still. I'm just thirty, so I can, I'm, can still class myself as a millennial. I'm not willing to embrace that I'm in my thirties yet. Right. But um, w- when I'm working with like individuals, that most of the people I work with are kind of in their twenties and maybe teens, those sorts of ages. Historically, is what I've worked with. Right. Um, but when it's worked with kind of older people, they've got a different mentality towards these things, and you know, it's they're not necessarily willing to trust it. It's something that, as you kind of point out, Richard earlier, like it's something that's considered a pansy thing, a wimpy thing, or whatever like that. There's still that kind of old school attitude towards mental health and talking about the problem, and I think there's been kind of a lot of focus on that lately. I mean, you just have to look at kind of male suicide rates are mm. just terrible. Um, but I think that from kind of a counselling technique perspective, yeah, like, the it, people that I've worked with that are older than me, and ultimately, like, yeah, you can have work life experience, but some of the problems that, you know, you look at all the different individuals that kind of come through my door and, and my roles and all their different backgrounds, I mean, I, I would have had to have lived a thousand lifetimes to come close to ticking off everything that I've heard or people come in and say. Like, the best thing you can do is to let people talk in yeah. a way, and, you know, it's not necessarily give advice. Um, we're not there to give advice as such, but we're more there to kind of open up the space and allow kind of exploring through things and not necessarily saying you should do this, you should do that. It's more perhaps just giving a little bit of kind, a little bit of advice, having someone to listen to and letting the person, whether it's yourself, Richard, whether it's myself going along, whoever that comes in through the door, letting them kind of take things where they're wanting to go and then more so using kind of your your experience your training to kind of point the questions ask them to explore and help help them come to the answers themselves as opposed to going well from my advice this is what worked and what's that's worked you, mm. you know you see cases but it's always that person-centered approach having a different idea you know treating everyone as their individual and not saying well this worked for me or this worked for richard or whoever this might work for you. Like, let's how let's see how we can make it work for you. Mm. And that involves a lot of talking and listening, as opposed to kind of advice. I think. I guess. Um, You're right. In, in, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> just on this this sort of idea of, of 
you know, counselling someone older. I guess you, you know, we do we do see that in Deep Space Nine when, with Esri counselling Garrick. There's that episode where Garrick's suffering from uh, claustrophobia and he's he is extremely hostile to the idea of any kind of therapy and particularly from someone much younger than him. And, you know, he sort of says, you're a child, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, and he's very kind of contemptuous of her. I mean, I suppose at least with Next Gen, we don't see that... Uh, you know, the kind of reactions that people have to Troy, they do treat her with respect. They do seem to take her seriously. They don't seem to sort of, I, I mean, maybe occasionally there's a scene where someone is a bit, you know, a bit funny about their their needing therapy or whatever. But generally, it's sort of accepted. That's that's part of the, the thing. I feel like there are other episodes in Star Trek that I can't think of any off the top of my head where... Uh, I'm sure like O'Brien or someone like that makes a remark about, you know... not Hard like, times, is it? Uh... I don't know. Yeah, it might be, but I'm just trying. To, I'm sure there's an episode of Deep. Maybe it's Deep Space Nine. It could even be Voyager, where there's discussion about you know whether to have a counselor on board or whatever. Um, and someone sort of says, "Oh, I don't. You know, I don't like it when there's a counselor on board." Basically, I know it might be. I think that was Voyager. No, or, or it I could think that be was the, Voyager what, because the, I. I know. No, I know what it is. It's it's the episode of Deep Space Nine, the sound of her voice. Which is oh the, yes, yes so it's just ah, bef- yes, 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 before yes. Esri comes on board and they have this basically therapeutic relationship with this woman over the like over the phone you know over the subspace or whatever um, and I think it, yes and that's the episode where O'Brien says to her you know oh, I don't mind talking to you I hate having to talk to the counsellor uh, you know as if that's sort of part of the job of being in Starfleet is every so often you have to go and see the counsellor. And he he doesn't like it, you know, but he doesn't mind talking to this woman, which I suppose goes back to Lee's sort of idea that, you know, you fight the the person you meet in the bar, you don't mind talking to. But the the professional who, you know, is making notes and is going to put it in a report or whatever. uh, There's this sort of anxiety about it. Just about the subject of age, though, I was just looking this this thing from the the TNG Bible. it actually says about Troy, it, it, this is the physical description of her, is tall and slender, appearing about 30 years old, but no doubt she's actually somewhat older. So there's this kind of idea that I suppose because she's, you know, half alien or whatever, that she, that maybe she is meant, to, and, and I suppose Marina Sirtis does play her as quite a sort of centred, quite a, um, you know, she does have a kind of a calmness and a kind of wisdom to her that, that maybe seems a bit older. But so I guess there's that idea that her alien side gives her, in the same way as Guinan's does, but maybe not to the same extent, gives her a kind of a bit of age and a bit of gravitas and so on that they, they're obviously going for. Um, and of course, it also gives her her empathy, which is, I mean, one of the weird things is with Troy, I think, that we... The counselling that we do see her doing, she doesn't use her empathy very much. I mean, you'd you, you think like be, being a counsellor, being able to read people emotionally that, you know, with that level of accuracy would be a massive asset. And in The Child, for example, where she, not in The Child, in um, The Loss, when she loses her her empathy, she basically says, I can't do my job anymore. I can't do my job without this. Uh, and has, you know, is really resistant to the idea that she could be a counsellor in the way that everyone else, you know, any human being is where they have to rely on, you know, listening to people and, and reading between the lines and, and, you know, picking up on the subtext and, and all these kind of things to, to work out these things. But generally speaking, despite that, she doesn't she doesn't make much of the kind of extra level of intuition she'd sort of have except for weirdly there's there's again going back to voyager there's an episode of voyager where she's counseling barclay um and i actually think uh i can't remember what the name of the episode is but i think this is the this is probably troy's best better than any episode of tng this is troy's troy's best counseling in some ways she um 
she, she has this session with Barclay and she talks to him about this girlfriend that he's got and she picks up on a kind of a feeling that he's having unconsciously that he's not articulating she she picks up on that there's something else going on beneath the surface and actually manages to work out that this girlfriend turns out to be using Barclay and it's not it's a sort of phony relationship as far as she's concerned and Troy picks up on all of this through a combination of I suppose her empathic abilities and you know and kind of emotional intelligence and 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 having the conversation with him um and it struck me watching that voyager episode that that's what her counseling sessions should always be like she should have access to more than an ordinary counselor if you know what i mean um Mm -hmm. whereas Mm -hmm. a lot of the time maybe she seems i guess part of the problem with her is she's got this sort of super ability and they don't know they don't want to use it too much so there's also the kind of thing with troy of uh, it, it can potentially ruin a plot because she can see through, you know, someone's lying or whatever she might know about it. Or So they often have to find ways to have her not be there at certain points so that she can't basically resolve the crisis, you know, uh, 20 minutes before anyone else can because she actually, she knows, you know, she ought to really always know what's going on. So I guess it's that kind of dual thing that they, they've given her this extra power, but then actually it, in a weird way, is sort of tying their hands in terms of writing stories because if they make too much of it, she becomes too useful and too powerful and it kind of um, destroys the potential for suspense and mystery and all these sorts of things. If she actually knows, you, you know, if, she, if really she knows what people are thinking the whole time, whether they want her to or not. Troy would have been a great 80s detective, I think, with her just like going around with her <laughs> yeah. mind reading abilities. You can you can almost just picture the opening credits just now. I think yeah. it would have been uh, so kind of pretty spot on, I think. <laughs> well, there's that discussion in the drumhead, isn't there, as well, of the idea of like using an empath as a as a kind of lie detector and whether whether that's sort of legitimate from a kind of legal point of view. You know, can you rely on, on the empath saying this person's lying or, or they're not? So, so if that was... I'd hate to go to couples actually... counselling with Troy, to be honest. <laughs> What <laughs> you 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 would think that she would actually be better at poker too? Yeah, she should she should be wiping the floor with them at poker. I mean, it's yeah, it's weird, go. isn't it? She should be the rich one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. And Geordie as well, actually, because can't Geordie sense things to do? You, you know, like um, if someone's heart rate heart oh, rate man, is yeah. raised or whatever. Visor, yeah. I mean, between the two of them, yeah. I don't think anyone should have a chance at poker. Plus, data presumably is, is counting the cards, you know, with perfect accuracy. <laughs> nice, nice. I like it. Yeah. So, does anyone have anything else to say on the topic of the mental health before we start to wrap up? I was just, I mean, this is just a sort of general thing. Moving aside from Troy, particularly, but I think one of the things that you see in TNG, can, you know, because we sort of talked about how the later series maybe deal with mental health a bit more head-on and maybe more willing to engage with it seriously um you know in terms that richard mentioned uh nog's um kind of ptsd after he's lost his leg and so on you know story like we talked about garrick as well in ds9 and in voyager of course you know you see uh depression you see janeway having kind of bouts of depression you see balana having various uh you know kind of being maybe not quite suicidal but but you know pushed to a really quite an extreme position and what's interesting i think about those series is that what they 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 went more into these uh these kind of issues and they took them more seriously and they and they allowed central characters to experience them but they also made them comprehensible in a kind of in a real psychological way so you know belana has that experience because 
she's lost her friends and she she feels you know maybe guilt about not being there and then it's this it's experience that would be traumatic for anyone um you know Janeway is having a kind of crisis of confidence I mean it's, it's partly in that episode it's to do with the fact that there's, there's no stars and so on but there's also quite a strong psychological uh background to it in next gen when you have threats to people's kind of mental stability I mean, I'm thinking of like you know frame of mind or uh or, or a good example actually might be remember me so Beverly Crusher uh, you know, people start um, disappearing and it, 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 on the face of it, it seems like a kind of paranoia fantasy. Do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 mad, basically, mm. the situation she's in. Anyone would think that that she was going mad. But but she has that amazing line, doesn't she? Well, there's there's she says something like, you know, uh, there must be something wrong with the universe because there's nothing wrong with me. And that ultimately is that is kind of the, the next gen position. So when someone has what seems to be a kind of mental instability of some kind. There's usually a, a physical cause or an external cause. There's someone's, you know, like Picard with the four lights, someone's been torturing him or or there's some spatial phenomenon that's affecting reality in some way or that's affecting people. And, and you see that again in, you know, in Enterprise and sometimes in Voyager as well, that people will get paranoid or whatever because of some, you know, because of a, I don't know, a particular kind of nebula or something. But so, so the mental health issues are... In some ways, they're not real. They're like they're like sci-fi plot devices, rather than, and therefore, I suppose, they're easily brushed under the carpet afterwards because it's like, well, yeah, someone messed with this thing or or this uh, aspect of, you know, astronomical uh, phenomena interfered with that thing, um, and then once you leave that behind, nothing really meaningful or, or sort of psychologically meaningful. Uh, has happened in a lot of those cases not not always i mean we do have the case of picard with the borg obviously which does sort of get picked up on a bit more but most of the time there's this sense that that these kind of they're not really real a lot of the kind of mental health crises that we see or that you might call that they're they're not really real and the only times where they are a bit more real often is they're maybe either the the less important characters so Barclay, I suppose, spends a lot of time in counselling. Or you see these episodes about children. And it's interesting, they sort of feel able to show more serious mental health problems around children. So you, you have the story of Jeremy Astor, you have that story of the boy uh, who uh, wants to be a robot and you know goes around pretending to be Data. They can kind of tell that story because it's a child and therefore it's sort of, it's somehow acceptable to them. Whereas an adult acting... Up in the way that, say, Nog is acting. I don't mean acting up, but, you, you know, reacting in, in the way that Nog is reacting. I mean, Nog's response is irrational. It's not reasonable. I mean, it's completely understandable. But he, he does have what you call shell shock or PTSD or something. You know, he, he thinks he's having pain from a leg that's been amputated and so on. And, and he's, he's not, um, you, you know, he's responding in ways that other people who know him and who who know the situation recognise are symptoms of a, a problem in a sense. And you wouldn't really get that in TNG other than with, you know, say a, a minor character or a kind of, um, like a, you know, like I say, a child or, or someone who who is not really expected to be part of that senior staff or that main crew. And it's interesting. It sort of makes me think that in one way with Next Gen, although there's been this whole thing of like destigmatizing mental health and having the counsellor and giving her this responsibility and putting her on the bridge and saying, this is an important issue, this is an important person. On another level, there is a weird sort of stigma around it because they can't quite bring themselves to engage with it. Um, even though, actually, a lot of the, the senior staff on TNG, I mean, there was an episode, an early episode of Women at Warp, they talked about this, you know, the um, they've all got really traumatic pasts. Half of them are orphans. They've all, you know, had... 
their their parents have, have divorced or you know someone's died or they Tasha Yar was being chased by gangs of you know rape gangs or they, they've all had these terrible things in their past that, that never really come up and that no one ever talks about um and you know for the most part they're all just totally functional um so there's the kind of blind spot maybe that that the show wants to emphasize the importance of mental health but without really ever getting into the kind of you know the the ill health of it right absolutely yeah i don't think anyone could have kind of summarized it better than that duncan um, yeah not to say that TNG is, oh, yeah. is not a wonderful show. I mean, it sounds like we're sort of, of we're course. damning it a bit. I mean, I mean, I just think it's an interesting, I think it's like, trapped historically, in the 80s, it's 90s interesting. Hybrid, isn't exactly. It? And it's trapped at a moment where they're kind of trying, I guess what you see a lot with TNG, you know, over other issues as well, whether it be like LGBT issues or, you know, there's a lot of good intentions and then the good intentions slightly, slightly fall short of, of, of what maybe they could have reached because there's a kind of... Um, I don't know, a, a, sometimes a bit of a timidity around certain issues. So they, they, they make, you know, they go in with the with the best intentions and they just don't quite manage to follow through on them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, the, I think that's most, most of Star Trek when it comes to like those issues, those big issues, you know, that you can only fit into like 40 minutes mm-hmm. of television and, you know, you can't fill it up with a movie. I mean, I mean, who would go? I mean, not saying anyone would go to it. <laughs> I'm just saying, but I just, I mean, because it's all about action when it comes to movies now. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, it, it, I, I, you know, and I, it, you know, just to go off of that, you know, some of my, fa- some of my favorite episodes that I watched, I watch is like, you know, the sound of her voice is one of my, mm. is one, is one I watch. Um, and also Memorial from Voyager mm-hmm. as well. Uh, when, you know, especially when it deals with PTSD issues. And I really wish they would have figured something out. I mean, uh, for Memorial, because, I, 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 I mean, yeah, uh, granted, you know, Janeway said before that they have counselors on board, which apparently the doctor is not the only person that's a medical uh, that's on the medical staff. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, it, it's, I really wish they would have, uh, you know, instead of saying, oh, you know, this Memorial stopped transmitting. So all of a sudden your issues are are taken care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like okay, but like yeah, I mean, as yeah. much as we've praised Deep Space Nine, I always think of uh, the episode Hard Times where O'Brien has twenty years of experience of living yeah. in a prison, putting his head, and then by the end of the next episode, he's back to being in the bar again and having a <laughs> typical <laughs> che- che- uh, cheeky chappy chief. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I, th- I think yeah. Deep Space Nine, Star Trek, all of it has has some way to go in terms of nailing mental health. Mm, mm, hmm. Definitely. Well, and Voyager too. I mean, yeah. one of the things that I suppose is, uh, you know, I talked about that that Balana storyline, which I think I think is a, you know a great episode and very powerful. But then it's kind of dropped weirdly, you know, having brought up this this serious sort of crisis that she's going through. There's there's one other episode where they there's kind of. It's it's not really clear. it's sort of implied that there's a connection to it, but it's really not talked about again. And and it does. I guess the the danger is it does sort of imply that you know a, a serious uh, you know a breakdown or, or a serious mental health crisis can be fixed within a week. You, you know somehow in the kind of magic of the future. And however good Councillor Troy is, I don't think she can uh, work that fast. You know, it, it takes time. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Duncan. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's so great to uh, get you on here, and hopefully, hopefully, we'll get you on again in the future when one of us decides to go away and have a holiday. <laughs> I could be your, your, your holiday cover, sure. 
<laughs> exactly. So, um, as we mentioned at the start of the show, that you you know you're the author of so many great books. Have you got anything that you know you'd like to recommend to people, or yeah, anything that if someone enjoyed listening to you that they would like to read what you've written in print? Um, plug away. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if you're interested in, uh, I mean, basically, I, I mainly write the the books I've been doing recently are sort of Second World War social history, generally generally focusing on women's history. Um, I did a book a couple of years ago about the First World War called Men of Letters, which was about postmen uh, who served in the forces on the first in the First World War. Um, so obviously there's quite a lot there if you're interested in, you, you know, uh, well, shell shock as they would have called it then, but the kind of, you know, really people who experienced some of the horrors of war you know right up close uh and then again sort of as we were talking about had to come back and adjust to you know going back to work at the post office and how do you kind of settle back into ordinary life like that um and obviously probably more relevant though is this uh star trek book that i wrote star trek the human frontier if you're interested in that you can go to www.startrekhumanfrontier.com and you can find out uh loads about that there uh i also will be becoming a, a more regular uh, voice uh, on the Trek FM network um, because um, Tony Black and I are starting up, uh, it should be launching just about now, um, a new Trek FM podcast. It's going to be fortnightly um, looking at, it's called Primitive Culture, and it looks at basically uh, our culture, our, you know, the primitive culture being our culture and the way that that's influenced Star Trek. So uh, looking, you know, I suppose largely at the kind of writing process, at the kind of inspiration behind the writing um, and seeing it in a kind of historical and cultural, uh, through a kind of historical and cultural lens. Um, so, uh, for example, the, the first episode that we recorded is about um, Oppenheimer, the scientist in the Second World War and how uh, his story was was weaved into a couple of Star Trek episodes. Um, we might be looking at historical stories. We might be looking at uh, movies. We might be looking at literary sources. Um, but really, sort of working out where are some of these ideas that maybe we're familiar with from Star Trek come from, and and how have the writers adapted those that source material, um, you know, to bring it into the twenty third or the twenty fourth century. Hot damn! As someone that is a, a bit of a, a social scientist at heart, I'm I'm already hooked on that. I'm listening, and like little eyes are like love hearts are blowing into my eyes. So yeah, I cannot oh, wait to listen go. to that. Episode. <laughs> we're, we're all in for a treat with that one. First episode oh, should yeah. be dropping soon, yeah. I think. So you'll you'll get to see uh, what we're talking about. And also, I mean, one of the things that we wanted to do with that podcast is. Um, you know, bring guests on if there's if there's you know if people have a, a an area that is a particular passion of theirs or that they are particularly familiar with because um, it's such a broad topic in a way. I mean, uh, you, you know, we just recorded an episode about uh, various literary influences, and you know, some of them were books that I'd read, some of them were books that Tony had read, and we were doing our best to kind of um, you know speed read uh, <laughs> a bit in the in the lead up to the recording. But you know, for example, um, I think Lee, am I right in thinking you're Big Lay Miz fan. Yes, I do. I, I, uh, I can that. be found singing. Li- li- right. Do you hear the people sing uh, in the early hours of the morning? Well, after there you a go. Too many so, so, so you know, for example, so if we get to that um, episode of Deep Space Nine, uh, you, you know, we wanted to do something about Lay Miz. You know, maybe you might be someone who could come on and, and share your 
your passion for that story with us. I mean, I think I think I droned endlessly about it in one of the From There to Here's as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure people are screaming for a companion piece. There you go. So basically, I mean, <laughs> no, so that's one of the, one of the things that appealed to us about about doing that project is it's a very broad topic and it also allows us to bring in people uh, with their own passions and their own enthusiasms and so on to talk about you know how those things relate to Star Trek as well. Awesome. Well, good luck with it. We'll be keen to, to listen in and support it best we can. Thank you. Absolutely. So, talking about mental health isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM. Here's what's been happening on all our other shows. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Best of both worlds. It's a good episode. I, episodes. I, I enjoyed it. I remember when it first took off. Family was a hundred times better to me. I'd watch Family... 10 times to 1 over watching Best of Both Worlds or Inner Light. Those are the types of things that interest me. And I do enjoy the action-adventure pieces of it. I truly do. But I, I love seeing the characters. And that's why Wrath of Khan works. Warp 5. It was just mesmerizing to me. And I remember when my, my dad, a long time ago, had an airplane. He would take us up flying, but never, you know, we'd hold the wheel and say, hey, we're flying an airplane. But I never really was bitten by the flying bug. But it happened right there on a runway in Hawaii, on Oahu. The 602 Club. And we saw it in the first Alien as well. I mean, like, the company sent them to yes. to, yep. to yep. the planet to bring that alien back, right? And uh, I, I didn't remember the part where, in this film, where Burke sent the the colonists to go and find the ship on his own without authority from the company. I had forgotten that part. So that was kind of an interesting revelation seeing this movie for the first time in 12 or 13 years, however long it's been since I've seen this. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcast on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, speaker soundcloud windows phone in most third-party apps and you can stream and download the mp3 file from our website or grab the rss link we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's shows and there are many ways for you to do that the best places to join the larger conversation is in the babel conference our listeners group on facebook just type babel b-a-b-e-l into the search field on facebook and it should come right up we love interacting with our listeners there, so join the conversation. If you'd like to send us an email, we love those too. You can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help keep all the shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. 
visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all that details at patreon.com slash trekfm. So, um, Richard, where can people find you on uh, the World Wide Web if they wanted to speak to you about any of today's topics? Well, they can only if they can find me exclusively only on Facebook. Um, I pop in there uh, here and there in the Bale Conference, and that's pretty much it for right now. I'm working yeah. on I'm working on a Twitter, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can find me on. Um... Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm not exclusive to uh, Facebook, um, but you can find me on Twitter at Lee underscore Nostromo, and you can find me on a bunch of other podcasts. You can find me on the Filibuster talking about nerd and geek culture, um, and you can find me sometimes on the Glasgow's Green Football Podcast. After we've just beaten our rivals 5-1 today, I'm sure I'll be on there soon enough. And obviously you can find me on the Babel Conference if you want to interact that way. Um, and what about yourself, Duncan? Where can people reach out to you? You can find me on the Babel Conference quite often. Um, and if you want to contact me on Twitter, I'm at Barrett's Books. That's B A R R E T T. Barrett's Books. Excellent. Find me there. So thank you once again for coming on, Duncan. And hopefully you'll all join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Today is a good day to die. Get that fish out of the ready room. If there's nothing wrong with me, maybe there's something wrong with the universe. Mm.